destroyed. Love you, buddy. Oh, you are so kind. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, your pr uh, presentation for us today, your gifts. We appreciate it so very much. And uh, it is such an honor to serve this church and be a part of this church. And there's so much I'd like to say, but I'll, I'll try to put it in a note instead. But uh, thank you. We love you. And we are the, uh, I guess we don't use the word lucky much, but uh, we're the most blessed people on earth to be a part of this, of this family. So let's, um, you've been standing. I won't ask you to stand, but as we get started today, um, we're going to be talking about the day when God says, well done. We're talking about the judgment seat of Christ and let's begin. The words will be on the screen. Let's pray the Lord's prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we also come before you to pray for those in our congregation that are sick. Um, not only with the virus, but with so many other things. We are, we are facing restrictions that we're not able to be hands-on with each other like we normally would be or would want to be. But we ask that you would touch every life, whether here in the sanctuary or in Brown Chapel or listening online, um, listening even at a later time. We pray for the healing and helping power of the Lord to be upon our church family, our friends and loved ones that are struggling. We pray for our president and his family. We pray for all of our political leaders during this uh, difficult time, uh, busy time running up to an election. We pray that your healing touch would be upon any of them that might be sick or in need of the grace of God. We lift them up before you because you told us that we were to pray for our leaders um, that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. So we do that today and ask you to show your grace to them. We pray, Father, as we've been praying for over four years, we ask that lies and liars will be exposed, that truth will rise up, that the church will wake up and that America will know what to do. Father, that's a prayer that we can pray regardless of our beliefs or convictions or opinions. We ask you to show yourself mighty to save and mighty to heal and help us to keep moving forward uh, as a church, as families, and as individuals. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise your name, Lord. Every year or two, I, oh, thank you. Um, I thought I was going to be mistreated today and have to, have to stand. Uh, by the way, somebody sent a, an email. They've never been to our church, but they said, are you okay that you sit down every week? And um, some, another one, uh, and I appreciate it, sent a 
prayer said, we're praying for your legs and notice that you have to sit down. And, and I appreciate the prayer. I mean, my goodness, thank God for people that pray. But um, I, just, I just wanted you to understand, back when we were doing three services, and you know, I didn't even get to finish any of the services. I either missed the beginning or the end, and I was running back and forth. I just found that I had a lot more energy at the end of the day after preaching three times if I sat. And um, it felt so good. I've just decided I'm going to just sit from now on. So uh, that's what's going on. No problem. No, no difficulties or anything like that. Um, but every, every year or two at the most, I don't think I've ever gone uh, two years, more than two years without preaching message about the judgment seat of Christ. Because as you know, there's a handful of maybe a half dozen messages that I believe are so foundational and so important I'll preach them every year, two at the latest, uh, at the longest. I also preach this message or one like it every year for the School of Leadership. Uh, in fact, I did that just this past week in chapel. They're getting a little bit of a rerun. The sermon's a little different um, today. But uh, I think there are some things that are just so foundational that we must not allow ourselves to forget these things. And I think the judgment seat of Christ is one of them. It's the day when God says, well done. There were three major life changers that occurred in my life in my late teens um, and maybe the very early 20s. The first was when I began to realize, um, and, and it's summed up in three words, uh, nothing, something, and then kind of a two-word thing, one day. Nothing, something, one day. The nothing is that there's nothing I can do that'll make God love me more. Nothing I can do that will make him love me less. That, uh, that changed my life. The whole, my whole view of God, my whole view of life, my view of ministry and the service, my view of church changed when I realized that and I realized the role of works. I, I didn't understand at first the role that works played um, in regard to reward, like we're going to talk about today. But I moved from feeling that, re that works were necessary for me to please God um, in, in the sense of, of becoming saved. That was the word nothing. There was the word something or some things. That was another life changer. Some things happen when I pray that do not happen if I do not pray. Therefore, if I fail to pray, then something in my life or the life of my children, or my grandchildren, or my congregation, something in the life of someone that I love may go undone because I don't pray. So I, I learned the importance of praying. And the third, the one day was this. One day, whenever things are going bad, I remember one day. When things are not going as they ought to, I remember one day. When you feel unappreciated, one day. When you feel misunderstood, one day. When you just feel worn out, you remember that one day, there is a day coming, one day that God will say, well done. He put it this way, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. A few years ago, I was preaching a message and it was bringing a lot of, of results um, uh, and in the message, the premise of it was this, the more seriously I take God, the more seriously he takes me. Don't say amen. I should have warned you. 
because I told you to say amen for that for years. The more seriously I take God, the more seriously I take me. And one night when I was praying, the Lord said, I, I want you to know you're not representing me well. And I, I, I had no idea what it was about. And the Lord helped me understand, He doesn't take me seriously because I take Him seriously. I felt the Lord say, what you're trying to say is the more intentionally I seek God, the more intentionally He works in my life. But it has nothing to do with taking me seriously. He already takes me seriously enough that if I had been the only sinner on planet earth, Jesus would have come to die in my place. He already takes me seriously. God doesn't take me seriously. God doesn't work in my life. God doesn't defend for me because I stand up for him. But there is a principle. It's manifested in scriptures like this. Uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about you unless you draw near to him. How many of you know that God sought us long before we sought him? He drew near to us long before we drew near to him. But there is a scriptural principle and it is this. The more intentional we are in our pursuit of him, the more we will see his hand involved in our lives. Somebody put it this way, I found that the more I pray, the luckier I get. And they were tongue in cheek saying, the more I pray, the more God becomes active on, on my behalf in a way that I can understand. It's sort of like this. Way back in 1976, when he was running for president, Ronald Reagan was speaking in a shopping mall parking lot in North Carolina. I don't remember the town. But he had a huge crowd and over in the periphery uh, off to the side was a group of, um, of, of about seven or eight little blind children, eight, nine, ten years old. They had come from a school where they uh, were in, enrolled in a special program. Obviously they were not there to see the president because they couldn't see him or the, the man running for president, but they wanted to be there, they were, uh, it was the first time they ever had an opportunity to do this. And one of the uh, campaign managers for Governor Reagan said, there's a group from a, a school over here, um, seven or eight blind children, little, little elementary school kids. They can't see you, but I wonder if you would be willing to go over and just say hi to them. And he said, certainly, he said, under one condition, he said, I don't want any photographers there because they will say it's the trick of a cheap politician to go over to a group of blind children and have a photo op with them. He said, if you can figure out a way that I can go talk to them without any photographers or news media being there, I'll do it. And uh, Mike Deaver said, yes, I think we've got it figured out. After the president, or he would become president, after Governor Reagan's speech, he goes back to his bus and the news media, they all rush to their buses and cars to go to the next stop. As he gets on the bus, he then backtracks over to the children who are told to stay there. There's no photographers. There's no news media. He walks over to them, just these teachers and a, uh, these uh, students and a couple of their teachers, and of course security and his campaign staff. And he said, um, "I wanted to thank you for." Oh, sorry. 
I wanted to thank you for coming today to hear my speech. It means the world to me and the kids were so excited. And Reagan, who was such a phenomenal communicator, he said, would you boys and girls like to know what I look like? And they said, yes, you know, and some thought it was a cruel thing to ask blind children, would you like to know what I look like? Well, Ronald Reagan knew the way that blind children would get the perception of someone's appearance. So he walks over to them. He said, well, I'm going to come over to you and I'm going to, to kneel down and you come and feel my face so you'll know what I look like. And in a parking lot with no news media, no ulterior motive, the story wasn't even known till Reagan was out of office, no pictures taken, but one by one, those children that were in awe of an opportunity to hear someone who might be president, one by one, they came and felt of his face. And they were so excited that before it was over, they all came up and they were all <laughs> feeling his face and rubbing his hair. And uh, uh, one of his workers said it looked like the president had been in a bar fight when it was over. His hair was sticking up. But, you know, those children's lives were changed. I don't know if they're Republicans or Democrats today, but they never got over the moment when a man who would be the most powerful man on planet Earth came close and said, I'll do what needs to be done for you to know what I look like. And that's exactly what God has done. He's not just the awesome king of the universe, which he is, but he is one who has come close. When the angel said he was coming, one of the names, I know he was going to be called Jesus, which means Savior, but one of his uh, names that he would also be known as was Emmanuel, God with us the God who can be touched. And it was this intentionality. God, God seems to be saying to us what the president to, uh, to be was saying to those blind children in the parking lot, if you'll be intentional, I will too. I'll match anything you put into this and I'll draw close to you. And that's exactly what he did. And you've got to understand the judgment seat of Christ is such a sobering thought. Think of what he said. He said, if you give a cup of cold water in the name of a prophet, you will share in the prophet's reward. And we know that this is, this is an upside down kingdom. Steve Kerr used to play for the Chicago Bulls and he was asked about, everybody was trying to get to Michael Jordan after the game. They couldn't get to Michael Jordan because Jordan that night scored 60 points. And they couldn't get to Jordan. And so they said, well, let's talk to Kerr. And he said, uh, they said, Steve, what do you think of tonight's games? He said, well, we played well. Michael and I combined for 62 points. <laughs> that made him famous. Michael and I combined for 62 points. And God exhibits toward us intentionality where we are not only heirs, but joint heirs with Christ. But he says, understand this. This is, God takes our lives so seriously that even when you do something that is as simple as giving a cup of water, you share in the reward. That's why I believe in every church 
that is accomplishing something for the kingdom. I, I think it's true of our church. I think in every great church in America, I think this is true. There are people that give their hearts to the Lord. There are people whose lives are transformed during the service in a sanctuary like this. And it's not just those who are in the limelight that will get the reward, but it will be those workers in the nursery that make it possible for that weary mom of three to listen uninterrupted, to hear the word of the Lord and to respond to the challenge of God's grace. Oh, I want to tell you, it's, it's amazing how gracious the Lord is and what he shows to us, even a cup of cold water. But he also said this, he says, be careful because even idle words you speak. That's why we've got to be careful. Loved ones, we've got to be careful in the high anxiety and the high tension of this age. We've got to understand, be careful what you write. Be careful what you say. You may think it's harmless, and I, I, I'm not saying you can't have opinions, but understand that every idle word will be brought into account, and we need to understand that we're to let our speech be seasoned with grace seasoned with grace. And all of us need to understand that. Um, Jesus laid down some amazing principles. He said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And we've all heard the story about the, the, the little opening that the camel had to get down on its knees and go through in the gate. That, 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 saying didn't originate for hundreds of years. I think Jesus was saying it's a camel and a needle. He said it's as difficult for the camel to go through the eye of the needle as it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And Peter said, well, then who can be saved? Because in the Jewish mindset, one of the signs of you being favored by God was being wealthy. That wasn't biblical, but it was part of Judaism. And he said, if the rich can't be saved, I mean, uh, find it difficult to be saved, who can possibly be saved? And Jesus laid down a principle. He said, with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And when we say we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it is a time of great sobriety. It is a time of great fear uh, of sorts. Um, but it is a time that will be made possible and it's a time that will be a celebration made so by the grace of God. Now let's look at three passages of scripture because the day is coming for you, for every one of you who knows the Lord, for me, for my children, for my grandchildren. The day is coming when we will stand before him and something will happen that he will say, well done good and faithful servant. There's one thing that I ask the Lord more. It overarches every other thing that I pray. Lord, let me live life so that you can say, well done. That's what we're after. First Corinthians three, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, uh, the, the only life that is going to be pleasing to God is the one that's centered on Christ, uh, Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, he said, some will build with gold and silver and precious stones, things that will endure. But others will build with wood, hay, and straw. King James says, wood, hay, and stubble. 
Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And what it, when it says, yet so as through fire, he says, it's, it, he says, even if you have no works to be rewarded for, you will be saved as though a man saved from a burning house who loses everything but saves his own life. He gives a little more elaboration in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's our goal. When we cross over to the other side, the first thing on our minds will be, have I pleased him? When we live our lives now in this life, at the, at the forefront of our thoughts ought to be, have I pleased him? He says, we want to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now that is not, uh, that does not mean like righteous versus sinful. It, may, it has to do with our motivation. Was it done for the right reasons, wrong reasons? One more passage, Romans 14. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you regard your brother with contempt? He says, why do you not love? That's the second great commandment. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Why do you not treat your neighbor as you ought to treat them? You ought to, he says, because you know we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. If I don't treat Robert Johnson right, that won't send me to hell, but it will affect my reward. I need to treat Robert right for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons I need to treat Robert right is because I'm going to give account to God for the way I speak to him, the way I speak of him. Okay? As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, since we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and since we're going to give account of ourselves to God, don't judge one another anymore, but determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block into a brother's way. Now here's the summary of what we're trying to grasp today. The Bema judgment, and Bema was the Greek word that was translated judgment seat. The Bema judgment will not be a place for dealing with our sins. That is so foundational. If you are a Christian, this is not talking about a judgment for your sins. The judgment for your sins took place at the cross of Christ. Our sins are dealt with. Now we have ongoing confession and we have the work of sanctification, but I am pronounced not guilty because of Christ's work at the cross. This is not going to be the place where my sins are dealt with, for they have been forgiven by the blood of Christ at Calvary. It will be a place where each of God's children is rewarded for their works done for the sake of the Lord. It is the place we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now we want to talk about three things today uh, in the time that we have left. We want to talk about the language of the judgment seat. We want to understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. We want to talk about the language of God's ongoing judgment. Um, there is um, 
I think it's losing its momentum and it should, but there's been a teaching that says there's no judgment. Once you come to Christ, there's no need to repent. There's no need to confess. There's no need to apologize. There's because all your sins, past, present, and future are under the blood of the lamb. That is true, but that's from God's perspective. From God's perspective, all of our sin, past, present, and future has been dealt with, but we still live in time and space. And if I do wrong, I need to apologize for that. If I mistreat my children, I need to apologize for that. If I don't regard my wife, I need to apologize for that. I can't just say, well, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. He'll say, you're going to be covered by some other blood in a minute. <laughs> no, she wouldn't do that. You, she's already been bragged on. And I want to tell you the half has not been told. But uh, we want to talk about the language of the judgment seat, ongoing judgment language. And number three, we want to talk about the language of love because you have to understand these three things. If you're going to understand that day, if you're going to understand one day, you've got to understand those three things. Let's talk first of all about the language of the judgment seat. Remember that this is an upside down kingdom that we're a part of. And the judgment seat is not the place where our sin is dealt with. It's not a place where one person will be saved and one person will be lost. There is a place of judgment for the unsaved and it's called the great white throne judgment. Um, I remember a lady in our church saying, y'all pray for me that I'll, that I'll hold out faithful to the great white throne. And I, my, my pastor said, oh no, sister so-and-so, we, we don't want to hold, we don't want to be found there. We, and I mean, he did it in a joking, loving way, had that kind of relationship he could. He said, you're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And, she, and he gave us a little 30 second sermon and boy, he was right. Boy, that, that helped me. Um, um, the, the, the judgment seat, Bema, um, I know I've, I've told you this so many times. I tell you every year, but the Bema was named after the closest thing to it in our culture is when you go watch the Olympic games and you see a winner's platform. It, it, that's the judgment seat. That's the Bema. And everybody there is being rewarded. Nobody on that platform is being told you should have trained harder or you're a loser. You know, nobody, nobody says anything bad or derogatory. It's first place gold, second place silver, third place bronze, but everybody is being honored for what they've done. There was one higher than another and uh, another higher than that one or, or than, than another one, but it's a place of reward. Every Olympian would, would live for the opportunity to stand at that judgment seat, even if they weren't first they're still recognized as a winner. And at the judgment seat of Christ, everyone will rec be recognized as a redeemed child of God. The issue is what reward shall we receive? Um, you got to understand that it's hard to understand exactly the dynamics of the judgment seat because as I said, we're in an upside down kingdom. Uh, Jesus said, the first may be last and the last may be first. Um, I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised who the really uh, big reward receivers just might be. The names that are most familiar with us may find themselves way down the list in a, in a surprising uh, kind of way. <coughs> Excuse me. Life as we know it is an extension from another realm. 
we are not, we have a tendency to think of this world as being the ultimate, but we are not bodies that have a spirit. We are a spirit that has a body. That is the real world. That is the clear world. That is the world that is eternal, not this one. Okay, now let's talk secondly about the language of ongoing judgment. Um, now I'm, I'm going I'm to choose the shortcut, I think, instead of the long cut. Uh, and um, when we're talking about the language of ongoing judgment, <coughs> I know what people are trying to say when they say judgment is past, there's no judgment. But that is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. See, 41 years ago, my wife became my wife. We, we signed and we pledged and we took it very seriously. I mean, those vows are important. We, we made a vow before God, you know, God, this is what we're saying to each other. This is what we're going to do. And I mean, that thing was tight. It was said when my pastor finished praying for a young couple, there's no way they could separate if they wanted to. They were just so bound together and we felt that way. But even though the last 41 years, there's never been a moment that, we weren't married. We weren't legally connected. There've been a lot of moments when an apology was necessary. The offense didn't mean we weren't married, but the apology needed to be made so that we could continue on in peace and harmony. And there has to be the grace to offer the apology. And I had to have the grace to accept the apology. Uh, if, if you believe that, I've got some real estate I'd like to talk to you about buying. Uh, we, uh, we have a sign in our family room. It uh, says, we've been through a lot together. And then in little print, it says, and most of it was your fault. So, but uh, no, seriously, I, there's never been a thought where I said, I, I'm just, well, I, if she's going to treat me this way, I'm, we're not married anymore. no. But we realized that fellowship was broken. We realized that feelings were hurt. And we realized that if we're going to have a successful marriage, and our marriage has not been perfect, it's, but it's been a good one. But we've realized if we're going to have a good marriage, there are going to be times when somebody has to say, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, people say marriage is a 50-50 proposition. That's, that's not true at all. There's almost always that somebody's given 70 or 80%. It may be you today, it may be your spouse tomorrow, but there's this constant going back and forth because you're saying we're going to keep the relationship vital, not just legal, but vital. And that's the way it is when we serve the Lord. Um, there is a principle of ongoing judgment. In fact, I'm not going to preach about these judgments, but just a quick count. There, there are others that I could probably put on the list, but there are at least 10 judgments spoken of in scripture and one, maybe two of them is past. The rest are ongoing or future. Uh, there's the judgment at the cross. That's the biggie. That's the one we latch onto. Our hope, we wear the helmet of salvation, which is the hope of salvation. Uh, you know, everything that we believe about going to heaven is based on the judgment of God on sin at the cross. At the cross, Jesus took every sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl who ever lived, took it upon himself, 
And because he was infinite God as well as finite man, he paid an eternal price for each of us. One way of putting it is that Jesus endured hell in an afternoon for all of us because of his capacity and all of what our hope for the future is is based on the judgment upon Jesus at the cross. Number two, various judgments upon individuals or nations as determined by God. We see that happening in the past and it still happens today. It's foolish to say there are no judgments on nations and governments and on sin today. Um, it, it still takes place. There's going to be, according to Jesus, a future judgment of the nations. Nations are going to be judged. Uh, I think the judgment primarily is in regard to Israel, perhaps the people of God. They're going to be sheep nations and goat nations. Um, Paul says, you need to learn to get along with each other and settle your differences. He says, don't you realize you're going to be judging angels one day? You say, tell me about that. I can't. That's all he said. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd give, uh, you know, I'd give a thousand dollars if I could have a copy of Paul's sermon outline that day where he talked about the judgment of angels, but he doesn't tell us. We just know that there is going to be a judgment of angels. And we're going to be a part of it. Um, but it's future. There's the believer's evaluation of himself through conscience or conviction. Every day I make judgment. Do I say this? Do I, do I think this? Do I participate in this? And I condemn or I reject on the basis of conscience or conviction. Number six, there's the evaluation of teaching and prophetic utterances. Um, uh, you know, if there's ever a message in tongues or a prophetic word given to the congregation, Paul told the Corinthians that they needed to let the leadership sit in judgment of that and approve the message or reject the message. It's ongoing judgment. There was disciplinary actions that needed to take place by church leadership. When Paul uh, was talking about that man that was allowed to, to live a horrendous life and have no repercussions on, his, on uh, his standing in the church, Paul said the leadership needs to bring this man into judgment and deal with it. There's another judgment, the Holy Spirit's giving or withholding of peace concerning a matter. Um, the Bible says, uh, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Um, the, the, one of the words in our English language comes from that. It's the word umpire. Let the Holy Spirit be an umpire in your heart over whether something is right or wrong. And that stands guard over our heart. It's Holy Spirit judgment. There are classic judgments. There's the great white throne judgment where everyone that has failed to accept Jesus as Lord will be, uh, will stand before the Lord and face judgment. And there's the judgment seat of Christ that we're talking about today. So whenever we think about the judgment seat of Christ, we've got to understand it's a place of judgment for believers and we live lives constantly of ongoing judgment. Now, not not condemning judgment. The, the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, you guys with me? You okay? Um, he says, there is now therefore no judgment or no condemnation, uh, no katakrima, no judgment against us. It doesn't say there's no judgment to those that are in Christ Jesus. It says there's no judgment against us. We don't stand condemned. Okay. I've told you about how that I prayed uh, uh, just a very few years ago 
knowing that I was going to stand before the Lord and give account for the way I've lived my life, I asked the Lord this. I said, if you are willing and I am able, help me deal with my issues on this side. Uh, there are some things I'm confident that I probably am not able to deal with. Um, I, I remember the Lord dealing with me with one thing that I had pretty well put out of my mind, an attitude I had about something. And he brought the full bore of it to me. And, and I told you about it uh, months ago. It was that time when he said, I judged you as much as I could without destroying you. And now this is the cleansing. If you want cleansing, this is what we need to walk through. And it's too personal and too long to go into detail. But God has been answering that prayer. And, and I meant it. I said, Lord, if you are willing and I am able, deal with what you will now. I don't want to be consumed by this. I don't want to be so introspective that I'm no good to the rest of the world. But help me deal with it now. And that's why we have a whole lot of shaking going on right now. I believe um, the goal, and you've got the text, I don't have time to read it. Hebrews 12, the goal of what is taking place around us is that God is shaking everything that can be shaken. The purpose, so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. Um, loved ones, I, I, I want to say this, part of this COVID thing, part of this 2020 year um, is nothing more or less part of it. Now, I think there's a, I think it's layered and there are a lot of issues that we have to deal with. That is certainly true, but I'm talking about in regard to the church and, and Christians. I think a lot of what is going on is a shaking to see if we really want to let go of false foundations and false uh, things that we've held to in the past. And I want to tell you, it is very, very uncomfortable. It is very, very overwhelming because God will shake everything in us to see how well we respond to that shaking. I've never seen a time, and the pastors I talk to are generally saying the same thing, I've never seen a time when people feel as overwhelmed as we do right now. Socially, spiritually, physically, financially, the list goes on and on. And the pastors I talk to are saying this, I've never seen us as a people of God being shaken as much as we are right now. And I've never seen people as committed to the fleshly solutions as we are right now. We've got to come back to him. We're not denying that things are, are needing to be fixed, not denying that things are needing to be judged. But loved ones, what I'm trying to say is that we are in an age, a day of shaking. And one of the things we need to be sure about is that as we come through this shaking, that God has been pleased with our response to the shaking. I didn't expect a whole lot of amens, but maybe a few more than I got. Maybe they're, maybe they're online. I don't know. Now let's, let's begin to bring this horse to the finish line. Let's talk about the language of love. We've got to understand that when God does judge us, it's always couched in love because, uh, and by the way, um, a lot of times, you know, you're hearing this prophet say that and that prophet say that. Part of the problem we have so many different voices and so many different views of what's going on is we think judgment is always punitive. We think God's not judging because he only judges to destroy. God judges to cleanse. God judges to redeem. 
And God is, he is so just and so accurate that he can bring an act of judgment that deals with the wicked on one hand and at the same time refines and protects the righteous. So it's the language of love. Love covers a multitude of sin and every commandment is seasoned by the two greatest commandments. It's this idea of service and of love. Whenever the scripture says that Jesus, when he was about to die, made an act to show the full extent of his love, the full extent of his love. <laughs> you say, boy, if God showed me the full extent of his love, my minivan would become a luxury car. If God showed me the full extent of his love, my husband would get his attitude right on everything. And well, maybe that's part of it. But when Jesus decided to show the full extent of his love, what he did is he took off his outer garment, put on a servant's towel, and began to wash his disciples' feet. He was saying that the full, of it, full extent of his love is wrapped up in service. And the reason I'm saying that is because on that day, we might be surprised what really brought joy to the heart of the Lord. We might be surprised at what we called good that wasn't good at all. We might be surprised at what we call just that wasn't, judged, uh, that wasn't just at all. In the white light of eternity, everything's going to be seen for its true value. Um, let me illustrate it this way. When President Abraham Lincoln um, was assassinated, part of the effects that were left were his wallet, in which he carried a small amount of money, and he had a couple of other items. One of them was a small newspaper clipping about this size, been folded over four times. It was a, a clipping about Lincoln way back in his days in Illinois before he ever became president. And it was a dime, there was also a dime wrapped in a little quarter page piece of paper with a little boy's handwriting saying, I love you, Mr. President, and I want you to get reelected. So here's a dime to help you get your job. Abraham Lincoln carried these things around. And you say a man like Abraham Lincoln carries a, a newspaper clipping that was nearly 10 years old. And, and he carries a dime with a note from a little boy, you'd think he would carry around a note from one of the governmental leaders or, or something like that. But when the story was explained why Lincoln carried this newspaper clipping and why he carried this dime, Lincoln said, had said this, explaining it to someone. He said, on my worst days when I don't feel appreciated, he said, I'm leading millions, but not he said, there are days when I don't think a one of the millions are thinking about me in a favorable way. He said, I look at this dime and remember there's a little boy, I think it was in Ohio. He said, there's a little boy that believes in me. And there's a newspaper writer in Springfield, Illinois that saw that I just might have some potential for a great work. You see, that was what was so precious to Abraham Lincoln. He could have, he could have had trophies and, and engravings and pictures, but he carried around two things that on his darkest of days reminded him of how 
um, he was viewed by some. I, I, uh, I have a little shelf in, in my, my office at home. It's called my treasure shelf. Don't, don't get excited. There's nothing valuable at all in there. Uh, my treasures aren't, aren't really treasures. It's just things that mean a lot to me. And um, I've got this box. The box is, costs far more than the gift that's inside it. But um, I, I remember it was, um, it was about uh, my 41st or 2nd birthday, I don't remember, and, um, just a couple of years ago. And I, as I was, uh, we, we, the way we do birthday gifts at our house, if it's me or mom uh, or, or whoever, um, you know, the person gets a birthday gift. I'll give one to Ramona. Ramona will give one to me. But there's another gift that comes from all the kids to daddy or all the kids to mom. That's, that's the way we did it when we were little. And um, they might also draw a card or whatever. But we made sure everybody had a gift to give on a birthday. And um, it was on my birthday and I got a wonderful gift from Ramona. Um, to be honest, I don't remember what it was because there's so many birthdays ago. I had a wonderful gift to daddy from your children. Um, it was a book when they all wrote in it and except Becca, she just kind of scribbled cause she was too little, but, um, it, it was wonderful. I was perfectly happy, but one of my children realized I didn't get daddy a gift. Well, she did. Mama always took care of that. But I saw her as we were sitting around the table, a concerned look came on her face she disappeared for a few moments and she got a, an envelope and she had gone up to her room and she found four quarters that were her life savings. She put them in an envelope and scrawled as only a little kindergarten kid can, happy birthday, daddy, and gave it to me and said, I love you so much. She gave me a big hug and a kiss. And um, I want to tell you, uh, these four quarters are a treasure to me, not because of their great value. I mean, these aren't even old quarters that were 90% silver. These are the cheap quarters. <laughs> but with these quarters, I remember the look in a little girl's eyes. I remember her hand on my face saying, Daddy, I love you. And that's why this is on my treasure shelf because of the heart that gave it. See, I, I, I remember that it's not going to be what we think it's going to be always. Let me give you four things about the judgment seat. And this is what we'll close with. It's going to be, first of all, on that day, it's going to be a time of review. Another word you can use is consideration. Everything that we've done, idle words, gifts of water, Four quarters. Everything that we've done will be brought to the table, brought to the light, and will be reviewed. And everything that, you know, there may be things in your life that you've done for people that are never even recognized, never known by anybody, but it will be brought to the light on that day. It'll be a time of review, it'll be a time of refinement. And what I mean by refinement, use the word clarification. Things will be seen for their real value. See, I, I don't even know if I can buy a candy bar with four quarters. But every time I see these four quarters, I see beautiful, big, beautiful eyes 
of my little girl looking at me, giving me the best she could give me. And, and that was as far as I can tell, unless she had some other squirreled away, that was all she had. But it was for my daddy on his birthday. It's a place of refinement. Number three, it'll be a place of reward. You can use the word compensation. Now, let me just say this about compensation. This is where it gets tricky because the judgment won't be according to the standards of this world. God will reward on the basis of quality, not quantity. You see, somebody may give, let's say, let's say our works are measured in gallons. Well, somebody over here might give 95 gallons and you only give 10 gallons. You'd say, well, their, their reward would be greater than mine, 95 gallons versus 10 gallons. Well, not necessarily because quality is how we're judged. He may have given 95 gallons of, of service to the Lord, but what if he had capacity for 500 gallons? And you say, well, I only gave, what did I say, five gallons? Ten? Uh, Do I hear 15? Ten? Okay, let's go with ten. You may have only given ten, but what if your capacity was 11 gallons? See, proportionately, you gave far more than the person that outgave you ten to one. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about life. See, that's why Jesus was able to look at the woman that put in a penny in the offering. Uh, two half cents. She puts it in the offering. And Jesus said, she has given more than anyone else today because she gave right up to her potential of giving. So we'll, re we'll receive a reward for quality, not quantity. We'll also receive a reward on the basis of our motivation. What was my reason for doing what I did? I was at a missions banquet, and I'm ashamed to say this happens with pastors, but I was at a missions banquet one time, and I'd been a special guest. And, I, I, you know, they, they pay for your hotel. They give you these meals. You don't, it's supposed to be a report, but what it is is you're at a church that gives a lot, and they want you to give a big offering. So I was there, and um, they began to ask for the offering, and uh, I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to give because I want to give, not because they're schmoozing us. So I prayed about it, and I felt like the, the Lord said, over the course of the year, you can give $10,000 for this orphanage. And, and I pledged it, and we gave it. But I was sitting next to a missionary, and... Um, he said, watch this. He said, watch this. He said, um, he had come with a big gift from his organization for a sister organization. He said, um, I'd like to give uh, uh, $75,000 for this project. And I thought, oh, that's great. And then he sat down and everybody was all excited for 75000 He said, now this is what I'm talking about. A pastor stood up and said, uh, I'd like to give $85,000 for this missions project. And everybody cheered. He said, I've watched him through the years. He cannot stand for anybody to give more than he gives because he wants his name to be at the top of the list. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, he said, I, I knew this was going to happen because he's the, he said he's the greatest giver to 
a particular organization, but he does it as, and whatever he gives, it's to keep his name at the top. Well, you say, well, praise God for the gift. Well, praise God for the gift is right. But I wonder, I'm, I'm not judging my brother. I'm, I'm not judging that church. But I wonder, who gets the greatest reward? The church that gives $1,000 because that's all they can give? Or the church that gives out of abundance because they want their name at the top of the list? You understand what I'm saying? Well, I better move on. And, and I hope he's not watching today. Um, Number three, the we're judged according to submission to kingdom principles and process. Did I do the right thing the right way? There are one of the most phenomenal missionary speakers that I heard growing up impacted my life and, and his life has led me through the years to raise a, a lot of money for missions. But you know what I found out later? I found out that he told stories that weren't true because he thought that that would increase giving. And you know what? It did. But what I've had to understand is that there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. You don't lie in order to increase the offering. You don't lie in order to increase people's faith. And on that day, a lot of things are going to be put in perspective. But here's some more good news. Let's get off of that because that's depressing. But um, Let's go to the next thing. We'll be judged not just for our accomplishments, but for our intentions. See, in the kingdom of God, you get a reward not only for what you do, but for what you've tried to do. You know, I believe some of the greatest soul winners, rewards in heaven won't be for those that won the most number of people. I mean, that, they could be. But there are people that didn't win a lot of people to the Lord, but every day of their life they tried. One of my missionary heroes worked for over 25 years in a Muslim country. And when he came home for a furlough, somebody said, how many souls have you won? He said, I think we're up to about 12 or 13. And somebody said, oh, 12. And, and, they, and, and a missionary used these words. He says, God is a businessman and God doesn't want us to give our money to 12 soul fields when we can give it to a hundred thousand soul fields. But what about those missionaries in those hard places? What about those missionaries in places where if to, to share the gospel of Jesus is to take your life into your own hands? What if those 12 converts that he had represented something far more uh, dynamic proportionately? See, those are the kind of things you can't say now, but they will be made clear then. They will be made clear then. Obedience to his commands. How sensitive was I to the commands of Scripture and to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Did I obey the Lord? Loved ones, I want to tell you there will be a lot of things you will be rewarded for on that day because you obeyed and you'll never see the outcome of it here. You'll never see the fruit of it here. And then the foundation of it all is our love for Jesus. Was there found in me affection for the Lord Jesus? Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I know that that's a thing that's hard to define and hard to, to, to quantitatively measure is love. Uh, you know, my mom used to say, I, you know, I love you a bushel and a peck and a hug around the neck. Or we might say, I love you to the moon and back. Or on a bad day, we might say, I love you just to the moon. Just stay there for a while, you know. 
it's so hard. You know, I remember asking my mom, how will I know that I found the right woman? How will I know I'm in love? She said, well, you know, you know, you'll know you're in love. I said, how? I said, tell me, what does it feel like? She said, love's a funny little thing shaped like a lizard goes first to your heart, then to your gizzard. You know, and that's what I started my adolescent years on. The funny little thing shaped like a lizard, you know, first to your heart, then to your gizzard. But you know what? That's pretty close. It's pretty close. You say, well, I, I don't know how to quantify my love for Jesus. Jesus said, the way you quantify it is, do you obey me? Do you do what I ask you to do? Now, it's going to be a place of review. It's going to be a place of refinement. It's going to be a place of reward. I want to say one more thing, and I want to say this very tentatively. It could be a place of regret. I, I don't, I don't want to paint the judgment seat of Christ as you better do good or you'll wish you had. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, Jesus is not going to look at any of us and say, well, here's your rewards. Not much, but you didn't put much into it. You know, it's not going to be like that. But I do think that there's a good chance that the judgment seat of Christ might be the place where he wipes away the last tears from our eyes. I, I, I think it could be a place of regret. You know, I've often said, when we see him, we will be amazed that we loved him so little. That's not a co condemning statement. I'm just saying our human hearts, I don't think we've got the capacity to love him the way we ought to love him or the way he ought to be loved. And I think when we see him, one of the things that will flood our awareness is that we should have done more. Not a condemning thing, but an admiring thing. A, a, a it's sort of like when you find the love of your, of your uh, dreams and you look at her and say, where have you been all my life? You know, it's it just, when we see him, we'll be amazed at how little we loved him. But there is to be no condemnation or unhealthy fear pertaining to this next event. Adrian Rogers, when he preached about the judgment seat of Christ, used to talk about in the days of the uh, early 20th century, before we have all the te technology that we have to fight fires now. Um, in Houston, if I remember the story correctly, there's a story of a building that was on fire, a hotel building. And, uh, and, and in those days, a lot of times hotels were used as apartments. And the, the building was just written off. We, we cannot put out the fire. We've got out everybody we know. A young screaming mother came up to the fireman and said, my baby is in that room right there. And the, the, the fireman said, there's nothing we can do among themselves. They said, there's no way we can get in there. It was a lost cause. This baby was going to die. And the mom was so despondent. She was so terror stricken for her baby that one fireman said, Guys, I've got to try. And they, it was an elaborate story with, with, with old technology. This fireman put on everything he could put on and started up the ladder. And he said, you're going to have to keep the ladder wet. You're going to have to keep me wet. And it was a, it was a balancing act because those fire hoses are geared would blow a man off a ladder. It was a fine balancing act. And could they keep enough pressure to keep him wet all the way up and all the way down? It was a suicide mission. But he went up, he went into the room, threw the 
the smoke and the darkness. He found his way. The mama told him where the crib was. He found his way to the crib. He picks up the baby and starts down the ladder. And they, th there's this balancing act. We don't want him to combust into flames. We don't want the baby to, to die. And, and it's just, uh, it, it's like a trip to the moon, the precision that was needed. And they got down and everybody is cheering until the mama took her baby and she screamed. And this is what she said, that young mother in Houston, Texas. She said, this is not my baby. This is my baby's doll. I'm not trying to play with your emotions. It's such a tragedy, such a tragedy. But I wonder as I review my life, as I bring things to the Lord, I wonder how many times I've put my energy and my effort into baby dolls instead of real life, into things that didn't matter. Oh, we're not going to get there and be shamed. I don't believe that. But I have resolved in my heart that I want my life to count. I'm not worried about going to hell. I don't speak of hell lightly, but my sins are under the blood of Jesus. I am not going to hell. Nobody can take me out of his hand. Devil can't. Demons can't. Nothing can take me out of the love of God. But when I stand before him, the, the overarching question will be, how well did I serve and I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to have things or God doesn't want us to have pleasure. He, he, he says he gives us all things richly to enjoy. He said that we're to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. But loved ones, the older I get, the more I ask, is this necessary? Is this legitimate? Does this matter? And I'm finding that I'm a lot less interested in baby dolls and a lot more interested in babies. Father, in the name of Jesus, we have talked about what to let go of and we have talked about what to hold on to. We have talked about what to live up to and now we want to end this line of thinking by saying one day, one day everything will be made clear. One day everything will be shown for what it really is. I ask you, Lord, let us not be content to just be saved by fire. Let us live the rest of our lives in a way that matters. I can't change what I did 20 years ago. I can't change what I did 50 years ago. I can't even change what I did this morning. But I can live life differently from now until you call me home or you return for us. And we ask you to let us live life in the light of eternity. If there's anyone here today in Brown Chapel, anyone listening online, that you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Open your heart to Him. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to know $4 words. All you have to do is say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for me. I know I'm a sinner 
and I want you to be the Savior of my soul. Forgive me for my sins and give me eternal life. You pray that prayer from your heart, you can be what the Bible calls born again right now. Now you need the church to, fellow believers to help you. So on the screen, you've got the phone number that'll be coming up in just a moment if it's not there already. Call us, people are waiting to talk with you. They'd be glad to pray with you. If you're here or in Brown Chapel, we're going to dismiss. And as you, if you want to give your heart to Jesus or if you need prayer for other things, come forward. And, and here in the sanctuary, you'll see people exiting to my right, going out that door. If you'll come forward, our ushers will take you right out to those prayer teams. I know that we've went a little over today, but that's your fault for loving on the chitties. It's your fault that we went over today. I had nothing to do with it. But let's leave this service saying, Lord, the rest of my life will be the best of my life because I'll live with eternity in view. The Lord bless you and keep you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.